Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Once again, I have my dear friend Charlie Engel with me. And we are going to talk about some interesting things that uh, I believe he's an expert in. Uh, he's just released a book called Running Man, which I'm in the midst of right now, and I'm loving it. And the topic that we want to discuss is suffering. And Charlie, for those of you that don't know him, has done some really amazing things on his feet. He's uh, put on this run across the Sahara and I'll say it again, he ran across the Sahara Desert and pretty much all points in between. He's run across the United States, I don't know, a handful of times. And so we want to talk about suffering and how that plays into athleticism. And then again, we want to visit his book because I thought that's a fascinating read as well. Charlie, say hello to folks. Hey, Richard and everybody out there. Thanks for having me back on. So, Charlie... Um, I was listening to the, the Google, what's it called, Zeitung? Yeah, Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. I'm not very German. <laughs> um, and it occurred to me in the course of the conversation you were having in that, uh, in that lecture you provided, you've run Vietnam. And, uh, you've, you've, just give us, give us kind of a highlight for those of the, out there that don't know you, the, some of the craziest things you've done on your feet. Yeah, I, um, you know, so it's funny when I, when we talk about suffering, and you and I have discussed this before, you know, I, I have to go back to where my suffering really started. And it was through, you know, 10 or so years of really serious drug addiction. And, you know, that is, that is where I learned how to suffer properly, if you will. And in hindsight, I look back at that time now, luckily, it was a long time ago. And I see that I learned a lot of lessons from that period of time. It was all in my 20s. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that I would say it was it was good or bad. It just was. But the lessons were certainly good. And, and when I got sober, I started running. And, and the runs took me to marathons all over the country first. But then I, I got the itch to do things that were more difficult or at least longer in mileage. And I raced in Vietnam and Borneo and Fiji and New Zealand and uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile and the Gobi Desert in China and a couple of times in the Amazon. And I just found that the, the deeper into those places and the deeper into myself that I went, the happier I was and the more lessons I learned. And then, of course, the Sahara was 
the culmination of a lot of years of doing other people's events. And I finally decided I wanted to plan something myself and, and inflict some pain and suffering on myself instead of letting somebody else do it. <laughs> and uh, that's really where it began. And I mean, I, I'm happy to say I, I continue to do it today. And, and w- one of the things that strikes me about what you said and that I, I really believe to be true is everybody suffers and we, some of our suffering is self-inflicted and much of it is in fact, you know, for runners in particular and, and obstacle course people. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're doing these things to yourself on purpose. Some things happen to us without our permission, you know, maybe an injury or, you know, or, or in my case, a real, a huge change. I, I ended up going to prison for a little while for, you know, something that was certainly unexpected. And so suffering comes in all forms, voluntary, involuntary, and that kind of gray area in between. But, you know, my goal has always been to face whatever that suffering is with the same open mind and open heart. And pretty much if I expect to learn something from it, uh, I do. And if I go into it closed minded, you know, it's a miserable experience. So I got a question. Now, do you think that suffering in itself being self-inflicted, and I'm referring more specifically to events that are challenging. Do you think that it's like the goalpost? It's, it's like you develop an addiction to the concept of suffering. You want to get to that place where things get really, really ugly to to get a better glimpse at who you are, and in through that, you find that you start to gravitate towards things that cause that to happen? hundred percent. No, you nailed it right there. And look, we, why would somebody go back and do another marathon or another hundred miler or another Spartan beast or another tough mutter? Why would you go and do that unless you got something out of it the first time? <clears throat> you know, you've got these people out there who are bucket list people and like they want to do one marathon just to say they did it or they want to do one Spartan race. And that's fine. I, I'm, I get that and and whatever. I think they're shortchanging themselves because it's only by it's only by doing something and then doing it again because now you have something to measure it against uh, that you really learn your limits. And you know, I I do think that there's an addiction to you know, to wanting to push yourself to that very edge and maybe even over the edge and then see if you can draw yourself back. You know, I've had what I've learned in in long, long events. And I think this is true for everyone is there's such puzzles, you know, a, a, a marathon, you can pretty much eat and drink enough to get through almost the entire 26 miles, you know, without without doing anything but just running. Whereas in a in a hundred miler or in a you know five hour obstacle course race, if you're not taking in some calories and drinking and doing body maintenance and fixing blisters and doing whatever you have to do, you know you're going to have a serious breakdown. So it becomes more of a of a puzzle. The suffering is <laughs> the suffering lasts longer, but it's actually far more interesting to try to figure out the best way that you're going to get to the other side of it. And, you know, I think that that's what people are looking for. I mean, yes, it is addictive and we all love to get that metal around our neck at the end. But 
you you can't do it just for that because you've spent you know you've spent a hundred hours of training for you know a two or three or four hour event and nobody would do that if they weren't getting something out of it hmm. i just uh i i can't help it in, in my mind right now i have this picture of a dear friend of mine that had just done, uh, I think it was the Ultra Beast in Montreal, and he sprained his ankle. And he, he has a tendency to do this. And you know with ankle injuries, they tend to revisit often. Mm-hmm. And I think it was unfortunate for him that he had coverage. The CNN, I think, was chasing him around to do some coverage about the event and his past and what have you. But he probably had about 10 miles left on the mountain to go with a severely sprained ankle and he continued to push on and you know as a coach I have a really hard time with that yeah because I look at the risk versus benefit in most all things and when you get into a situation that's untenable where there's really no value in proceeding I want people to 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 know when to say when But it's like something drives these people to drag themselves through it, regardless of the cost might be. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around what that vibe is that they're trying to achieve that, that, you know what I'm saying? I do. And, and, you know, and I, I've been in the same position as your friend. And I, so I ran, you know, after the Sahara, the next year I ran, I attempted to run across the United States, you know, to to go after the transcontinental record. And, you know, I started that run with a a severe case of MRSA, a terrible staph infection. And I probably should have (laughs) I probably shouldn't have started. But frankly, I'd gotten myself into a position, you know, there were there were sponsors, there was a schedule, there's a film crew. I mean, everything is on the line. There's no, there's no like not going. And so I decided to go out there and and just see what happened. And I won't bore you with the details, although the film of it actually came out very, I think it was an intense, maybe a little dark film, but it's, um, it's a great definition of suffering running America is. And it's, it's a, it's a film that really shows my deep dive into the abyss. And I was injuring myself. You know, I felt this incredible pressure to keep going. And frankly, I don't think I was capable of stopping. And it, it took a doctor. It took the doctor, Dr. Paul Langevin, on that expedition to actually sit me down and, you know, my, I was having numbness in all of my toes and neuropathy and I had like a foot drop developing. And he's like, look, this is this is nerve damage that is, you know, potentially permanent. Like it's not going to you're not going to just get better. <laughs> so it's not going to wash off. Right. So if you really think it's worth it to keep pushing this, I mean, the record was already, you know, that wasn't going to happen because I'd. I was barely hanging on for dear life and moving at all. So it was going to take me 2,000 more miles, you know, to get to the finish. And in all likelihood, it would have been the last, you know, running I ever did. And so I I pulled the plug or he pulled the plug, really. But I I do think that it's tough. You know, we're in a society that, that values and honors 
toughness and there's a fine line. And I tell people, to your point, I tell people all the time, there's two different choices and you know it in your heart. There's injury and there's, you know, determination. And those are on two different hands. And if you feel like crap during a race and you really want to quit, you need to evaluate whether you're injured. If you're not injured, then you probably need to stuff a thousand calories in your mouth <laughs> and and walk for 15 minutes and you'll magically feel better and you'll you'll, you'll be like, oh, my God, thank, thank God I didn't quit. You know, but if you're if you have a severely sprained ankle or you, you know, your your rotator cuffs torn or some crazy things happen. I mean, it's just a race for God's sake. It's not you're not fighting for your life and there's no there's nothing to be gained from continuing to to do something that's actually going to cause permanent damage. That's to me, that's where I draw the line. Well, again, that's what I said. It's like risk versus benefit. I've worked with professional boxers where they were in dire straits. They're pretty well punished, I mean, to the point where it's life-threatening. But there was millions of dollars on the line. And I've said it a million times. If someone was to pay me 8 or $9 million to stand in the ring with the heavyweight champion of the world – Charlie, I'll pay you $2 million to hold me up so he can continue to hit me. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because look, there's going to be a reward at the end of the tunnel. I agree. And I and look, I certainly recognize the, the economics of certain things. Hell, that's why I started running America. I mean, if there had not been sponsors and money and other people involved, I would have just postponed for two weeks until I could feel better. But... You know, I, I felt trapped. I felt like I had no choice. And it was disappointing to stop. But, you know, I agree. I mean, I I don't know what this says about either you or me, but if there was, you know, I don't want permanent brain damage or some kind of injury that's never going to go away, but I, I, in all likelihood, would risk it if there was, you know, a million dollars on the line or something. I would I would at least not quit until there simply was no way to continue. Right. And that's the fine line, I guess, is this somewhere along the way you have to measure the consequence and ask yourself whether it's worth it. Yeah. And I'm sure that most people have a, a certain checklist that they go through when they're starting to identify the problems that they're experiencing while they're competing. And they start to weigh it and ask themselves whether, well, I'll give you, for example, the last race I ever did was a couple of years ago. I did um, a triathlon and it was, you know, it was an Olympic distance race, nothing crazy, but it was a, it was a really tough swim. The ocean was really angry and the current was laying really heavily against us. And the finish time that I anticipated, I was well-trained took me 20 minutes longer than I had planned. Right. I mean, everything about what I was setting out to do, I was comfortable feeling like I could I could uh, cover the distance in about 26 minutes, and it took me 44 minutes to finish this stupid thing. And there was so much current, we had to, you had to uh, do kind of a polo stroke where you're constantly looking up. And in the course of doing that, I put a lot of stress in my low back, I literally mm -hmm. could not get out of my wetsuit. I had so much pain in my back. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, the 
the medical tent's right over there. Maybe you should just drag your old self over to that tent and be done. <laughs> but something kept pushing me towards the bike. And the the bike ride was so miserable because I was in so much pain that I thought as soon as I get back to the transition area that I'm going to go to the medical tent and have somebody get a look at me because yeah. I know something's not good. And I found myself putting on my running shoes. And before you know it, I was a half a mile into the run, weighing it, trying to decide whether this was too much to ask. And before you know it, I finished the event. Yeah, and, and and to be prudent, I probably should have stopped. I didn't get paid because I finished. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It was it didn't change my life in any stretch of a, of imagination. I just pushed myself through it, and I don't know whether it was an intelligent decision. I don't even think that I even thought it through as to whether it'd be a smart thing to continue. I only I only looked at the the medical tent with wanting eyes because I was in so much pain. I really didn't think in terms of just wanting to quit. I think you probably knew in your gut too that, you know, you were, you, I think it sounds like you knew what had happened. You had put your neck in a funky position. You, you probably had just strained something and weren't severely injured. And I mean, I do think as, as athletes that we, you know, we're constantly taking inventory and your inventory was telling you, okay, you know, this sucks, but you knew in your heart that it wasn't time to go to the medical tent and pull yourself out of the event because, you know, it was just uncomfortable. And I don't know. I mean, I do think there's an instinct there and, and experience guides you. Well, that may be true. And I think that in some cases, again, panning back to my friend that was crawling basically on a twisted ankle, he had done it before. Yeah, And so somewhere in his heart of hearts, he knew that, well, this is going to suck because I've done this before, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm doing it again. Yeah, that's know. interesting. That's an interesting point because I, speaking of ankles, I mean, I've had a, from my, my years of basketball a long time ago, I've had more than my share of sprained ankles and I, I have turned ankles in races. In fact, I'll, I'll never forget doing the Hurt 100 Several years back, I turned an ankle on the fourth loop. And I mean, I turned it like, I don't even like to think about it. It makes me hurt. But I turned it all the way over. And it was on a wide open stretch. Like it wasn't even, there were no roots or rocks or anything. And, and I still have no idea how I did it. I just managed to come down on the side. But I had sprained my ankle so many times in the past that I did actually know, all right, this is going to hurt. But it's not going to, you know, it's not going to get any worse than kind of where it is right now. And it'll probably be swollen after the race and all that, but it, it's not doing any permanent damage. And I, I don't know if your friend had that same base of knowledge, but, you know, I think we do, we gauge the injuries along the way and decide whether or not it's going to be, you know, something that's going to stay with us or we can just get past. Well, then the other thing is the consequence of quitting and, what your peers are going to have to say about mm -hmm. your quitting, whether yeah. you have this thing inside you that says, I'm not going to be that guy that they're going to talk about because he didn't finish. Yeah. And whether that weighs heavy on somebody's mind when they're, when they're out there suffering along. And 
I think it does. I think it can't, you can't help it in this day and age of Facebook and everything else. Um, I, I think it, it puts a lot of additional pressure on people because everybody's happy and perfect and having great events on Facebook and <laughs> which of course isn't real, uh, because that's not the way it always works. It's, you know, so my writing style, Richard, and I don't, I don't know whether you have the same thing in you, but like my writing style is very much, I love to talk about my screw ups and my, and the hard times. And it does go back to the suffering. You know, we're not, we're not built to sit and talk, sit around and talk, at least most of us aren't about the things that were easy or the experiences that ended up, you know, we won the race and it was super easy and you know, nothing really interesting happened. Like what, nobody even wants to hear about that. You know, what we, what we end up talking about and when I can't run anymore and I'm on the porch in my rocking chair, you know, I'll be telling the stories of, you know, a leech in my eyeball or, uh, <laughs> you know, or the, the time I skewered myself, you know, through my thigh, you know, when I fell off the edge of a trail or, you know, whatever. I mean, those are the stories we tell. And even the ones you're reading now, you know, you're, you're at a point of my book where you're, you're reading about addiction stories. And it's arguable whether those were self-inflicted or I was destined to have them because of my addiction. And I don't, I don't try to answer that question in the book because it doesn't really matter. Um, but you know, I certainly, I certainly suffered. And time and time again, you're looking at, you're, you know, you're reading and going, oh my God, you're an idiot. Why would you go out and do that to yourself again? But, you know, there, there is a, there's an unstoppable force with addicts. I also do believe that a whole lot of the, <laughs> I'm not passing any judgment and I sort of mean this tongue in cheek, but I think a lot of the better, well, not even the better ones, the, I think the ultra field, whatever sport, cycling, you know, Spartan racing, and I mean, obstacle course racing, whatever it is, I think there's a lot of addiction or addictive quality and a lot of recovering people and a lot of people who aren't in recovery, they're just still doing their thing. And, you know, it doesn't, addiction doesn't always manifest in drugs and alcohol. It manifests in a lot of different ways. Well, no question about it. Yeah, so. uh, I don't think that's a condescending remark at all. I think that, that we are thirsty for some salvation, and yeah. sometimes people find it in erroneous places, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, if if someone was to admit that they're pretty much addicted to their running, nobody seems offended by it. If you yeah. said that you're addicted to crack cocaine, they develop all sorts of opinions about you. Yeah. But essentially, it I would imagine, and you're more of an expert on this than I am, that it is, it's the same path in a lot of regards. I think. Well, and you know, we we only see other people from the outside. You know, you can't you can't truly ever know another person, even the even the person you might be closest to. You know, and their their deepest motivations and thoughts. And I know for me. You know, people might look at me from the outside and go, man, you know, that guy just keeps running. I wonder what's, you know, what's wrong with him. Or, you know, maybe some people say that. And I, I you know, I, I have no reason to stop. And I, I know early in my sobriety, I felt like the first few years, my if I could have taken a knife and like 
sliced out a piece of me that was the addict and gotten rid of it. Like I thought that's what I needed to do. I needed to kill that part of who I was because, you know, before it killed me. But what I learned through time is that it is that addictive nature and and that part of me that's an addict that actually makes me good at things, you know, and, and it drives me and it's, you know, it's, it's a driving force. And if it weren't for that part of me, you know, I might just sit around and get drunk all day or I might just, you know, whatever there, there, there would be no motivation and, so it took me a while to figure it out, but I, and I think a lot of people are out there figuring it out now. And I, I would always encourage that, you know, find a way to use that addictive nature and, and, you know, point it at something that you're passionate about and just let it, let it do its thing because it's a man, it's a powerful force. The, the difference is maybe it's just age these days. You know, I don't, if I miss a day of running, I don't, it doesn't bother me one bit. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not concerned with, I like to exercise every day because I know it makes me function better, but I don't need to exercise every day in order to be, you know, sane or happy. So I've, hopefully I've evolved a bit since those early years. We've been dancing around your book a little bit and I want to talk a bit more pointedly with it. Now, I know you fairly well. Mm-hmm. And I started reading your book, and a lot of the things that are revealed in the book I knew about you anyway. So it was an interesting thing for me, where someone that doesn't know you is learning about you. It's kind of a different approach to the to the book. My first observation, I guess, having written a book, is I thought you did a damn good job portraying the information. And I don't know whether you were coached or or you had somebody in your pocket that was helping you to reveal yourself, but I think it's done really, really well. It 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 it's caught my interest. Uh, I mean, aside from the fact that I know you know, I'm just l- trying to learn more about what occurred in your life. I just thought it was really well done, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I'm just telling you that I thought it was done really well. So I need to know. Did you get coached? Did, was somebody helping you with the writing? No. I mean, I, I, you're reading my words. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to my very, very smart wife, first of all, who, whom you've met. And, you know, she certainly was my first line editor in the sense that for two, for two things. Grammatically, she's incredibly superior to me. <laughs> so I'm a I'm an instinctive writer, and I I think I tell pretty good stories. But uh, and I I certainly know grammar and punctuation, but I don't I don't know it to a degree that she does. So she was wonderful about that. But but more importantly, you know, I did have another. I had an editor that I worked with through you know through my agent, and uh, she and I developed a great you know friendship and relationship, and and she. You know, she would occasionally rewrite pieces or or never really rewrite, but take words, maybe flip a paragraph on its head and start in a different place. And, you know, sometimes it would come back and it would be great. And other times, you know, I would read it and I might think it's okay, but my wife would read it and go, you know, that just doesn't, that, that doesn't sound like you anymore. And so, 
you know, we would always revert back to, you know, to the original, but I'm, I'm absolutely the writer of it. And uh, it was fun for me. What I had to learn, Richard, is I'm, if you go back and ever see some of my old blogs and, and stuff that I wrote while I was in prison, I, I tended to be a very florid writer, you know, with a lot of descriptive language and a lot of big words. And what I really wanted to do with this book was, was first of all, not write a running book. Um, you know, the deal I made with the, the reason I chose Simon and Schuster, in fact, was I'm happy to say I had the luxury of several big publishers that were interested in the book. And I wanted Simon and Schuster because I liked this, this person that I was going to work with there because I, I told her that I, I didn't want to write a running book. I wanted to write a, you know, a real book. I wanted to write a memoir, not that running books aren't real books, but I wanted to write one that it was all inclusive of story and not just a collection of racing stories. And I think that's, you know, what you're saying is a great compliment to me. And I, I think it's, I think I accomplished it. I, I, I will tell you this one final thing, <laughs> funny story. And I've had this happen several times, but, um, so Jono Sarah at the New York times, you know, wrote about me a couple of times when I was in prison and he knows my story intimately and, and knows a lot about me. And, uh, so I sent him the book or the publisher sent over the book and an advanced copy. And he, he wrote back and he basically said this, he said, you know, I knew you would tell good stories, but I was completely surprised. You know, I didn't expect the book to be so well written. And I thought that was the greatest backhanded compliment I'd ever gotten. <laughs> yeah, but that resonates with me. And I don't mean that to be backhanded. I, yeah. um, I mean, you're not a journalist by trade. No. I, have, I have friends that are journalists, and they can pop out books like babies. I mean, it's just really not a big deal for them. Yeah. And the passion and the descriptive narratives that you created, I thought you did a really good job with it. So for whatever it's worth. Thank you. It's a no, good and I appreciate it. I'll tell you one final thing, too, about that, and, and you'll laugh because it won't surprise you because of the way I talk. I'm also a prolific writer, and so I wrote in the neighborhood of 750 pages for this 270-page book. <laughs> and so what I learned to do in this process was to trust my wife and my editor. And very often I would work for two weeks on a story, on one story that might be 10 or 12 pages. And, you know, gut-wrenching. One in particular stands out about my grandfather, who was the, you know, the head track coach at UNC Chapel Hill for years. And, you know, so I told what I thought was a very good story about him and he died when I was young, so I didn't really know him. And my editor actually came back after I sent it to her and she said, man, that was a that was a fantastic story. Thanks for sending it. But no, it's not going to be in the book. (laughs) (laughs) And I. I wanted to argue, but the, here was her point and I, and I came to be okay with it. You know, it, that story did not move the book forward. Like you could take it out or leave it in. And and what I, what I began to understand was if you could take a story out or leave it in and it made no difference to the reader, like it wouldn't really change their knowledge, then it probably didn't belong in the book. And 
I, I look at all the writing I did now and I have it, you know, beautifully in piles and in binders. And I know that someday maybe my my kids will want to read some of those other stories, you know, other races that I did, other other thoughts I had, you know, whatever it might be. So I'm very glad I did it the way I did it. And I, I actually hope I get a chance to do it again someday. Hmm. Now, let me ask you this, and I'm, this is, again, coming from someone that's, that's struggled with writing. Did it take you a long time to write, or were you, did you, have you been working on it for a long, long time, and then the bits and pieces that you drew together, uh, just kind of a culmination of a lifetime of work, or how did it go? Yeah, I would say, it's a great question. I would say I had a good third to a half of the book really written when I started kind of in earnest. And a lot of that happened in prison because, and this is, this was a really, um, it was an illuminating period for me because uh, again, the prison section of the book too, I think highlights the fact that it's what I say all the time. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It, It only matters what you do, you know, with what happens. And so part of what I did in there was I wrote. You know, I probably wrote for three hours a day, maybe more when you count. You know, I probably answered 2,500 letters while I was in there. And so instead of just writing someone back a short note that said, hey, thanks for writing, you know, things are okay, whatever. I used the writing of letters to sit down and and really try to write eloquently and to tell stories and to not be uh, dismissive of of really answering. And then the other thing I did was I, I did, I sat down. I, when It's like practicing anything else. If I did pull-ups three hours a day, you know, I would assume that a year from now I could probably do, you know, a hundred pull-ups without stopping. And it, in some way, it's not quite that simple, but in some ways it is. I, I learned, I'd always been a, a pretty good writer and a good storyteller, I think, but I really learned how to how to tell a story, how to lead people to a story without without forcing a conclusion upon them. That was the hardest part, you know, because you, you want to say on one hand, and you know, as a writer, part of you wants to say, you know, here's, you know, here's how I did it. And then you're a coach. So it's actually harder for you even because you want to say, here's how you should do it at the end of it. What I had to learn to do was just say, look, here's what happened to me. And whatever conclusion somebody draws from that, that's up to them. That's not up to me to tell them, like, for the legal part. Whether I was, whether what happened to me was just or unjust is, uh, it's not debatable in my eyes. But the second I cross the line and say, you know, here's what happened to me and here's how you should feel about it. You know, that is a line that I didn't cross. And I, I, I want people to read the stories and come to their own conclusions. Well, again, I, I have to applaud you. It was, it's a good read. So far, uh, I was hoping I'd get more of it read before we had a chance to talk about it. But I, I'm going to go back to it probably right after we finish. I was caught up in it, and I was looking at the clock going, I've got to get on the phone with Charlie in a little little bit here. For whatever it's worth, I highly recommend the book to anyone that is passionate about just about anything. I just think, you know, so so the cool thing is, as you suggested, it's really not about running. 
and uh, it's just a great story. So I want to get off the topic for a second, and I want to get in your head about this coming weekend. Yeah, well, um, I, I we should have talked about this beforehand, but I hate to break it to you. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that. I was, you know, I mean, I didn't know that uh, that was going to come about. But I'm assuming that your business is just causing you to, it, to take a turn. Yeah, maybe. And maybe it. I think it's ego and wisdom at my age. Um, I naively thought a month ago that uh, – I could cram all of this in and keep training for a very, very hard event. And I think out of respect for the event itself, you know, I didn't want to go there and and not do a good job. And I mean, and, and look, I absolutely will say I don't mind voluntary suffering. In fact, I, I, I think I do it quite a bit, but I also... Um, I don't want to make an ass of myself and maybe it is how I look, but I don't, I don't think so. I actually don't mind making an ass out of myself. I've done it so often in my life that, that it's, it's a pretty comfortable thing for me, <laughs> but, but well, I, I'm disappointed. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I was really, uh, I was really curious to see how you would fare. Yeah, well, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do a, uh, you know, the ultra, it will happen. It's just there's not as many of them, so there's not as many opportunities. But, you know, I'll, I'll end up on the East Coast one maybe next year. And it, it just, you know, it just wasn't in the cards this time. And I, I haven't I haven't really trained in a gym or anything else for the last three weeks. And it just, yeah, it was a white, it was the right decision for me because, it's, as you know, it's also not an easy logistical thing to get to. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, I needed to be prepared. And, and I think that is another decision, though, that people always have to make. You know, you have to decide whether it's not always about being. I, I tell people all the time with ultras, frankly, you don't have to be prepared. You, you, know, you have to be mentally prepared. Right. But I, you know, I don't have enough experience with obstacle course racing to um, to wing it. You know, I, I can't wing it on something like the ultra. I needed to have prepared in a very specific way, and that just didn't happen. So I'm I'm sorry that I'm standing you up this time, but don't don't give up on me. You'll... Well, if I would have been coming, it would have been a different story. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the people that are listening and trying to figure out what we're talking about, Charlie and I spoke about him participating in the uh, Spartan World Championship Ultra Beast this coming weekend. And I was pretty high on him having a chance to get on the podium this time around. And um, I think it's in the cards still, whether you know it or not. So let me ask one more question on that note. Since you're so astute with your, your suffering capacities, have you thought about this world's toughest mutter? Absolutely. Well, I mean, because I, you know, because our mutual friend Nick, uh, Holland is is so um, good at it, and you know I run with Nick, and he's uh, obviously he's half my age, but uh, you know I'm incredibly intrigued by the world's toughest mutter and the you know the loop course and you know the 24 hours of it. I, I think it's an amazing uh, format, and would absolutely love to do that race. So. I'm sorry to actually ask this right here, put you on the spot, but when is that race? 
That's coming up. I think it's the end of October. Okay. I don't. I, the date escapes me. There's. This is actually we're coming into the championship season here in okay. this next month. So there's there's Lake Tahoe, and then there's the OCR World Championships, which are actually shorter courses, and then there will be the World's Toughest Mudder. They're all yeah. kind of culminating into this next month and month and a half. Uh, yeah, it's a little early or a little late, I suppose, to to yeah. uh, toss your hat in the ring now. No, I'm. I'm, I need to give it the proper, you know, I, I would like to take, you know, maybe next year will be the year of obstacle course racing for me. Because I, I do think that, at, you know, in 54, and, you know, you look at the final standings at any of the big races, the World Championship and all of that, and it, and it is dominated by guys in their 20s and 30s. I, or I should probably even say their 30s and 20s, because I do think that if I saw correctly, at least with the longer events that, you know, the 35 year olds seem to have the edge. I don't know why. Maybe it's a combination of experience and, um, you know, and still having good speed, but it's incredibly intriguing to me. I love, you know, I love the idea of diving into something. I, I say this all the time, Richard, I was explaining this to somebody earlier, you know, I, I'm, and I, I do go into it in the book, where, you know, I ran like 30 marathons the first few years of my sobriety, something like that. And I, when I reached a point where I started, you know, I got on the start line and I, I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to finish the race. You know, I guess the only question was time, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like scared and I missed that. You know, and that's why I started to go longer. And it's why I still go find events that are new and harder or just different than what I'm used to. Because why would I want to keep doing something that I already know I can do? You know, I, I don't I don't I don't want to do that. And so obstacle course racing is a, it's like a brave new world out there right now for me. I know for a lot of people it's been going on for years, but. You know, for me, it's something that I look towards and I, I know I'm not going to be all that that great at it to begin with. But I but I think I can learn pretty quickly and and hopefully do more than just be an age grouper. I think I can be at least moderately competitive in some of the longer events. Well, I think that's more up your alley than you give yourself credit for, because there is this tenaciousness about you and the events that work very well together. And. I, I know guys that are just, they're fast, but they don't have that tenacious nature. Things get in the way. And then the, you find that the guys that may not be as fast have the capacity to get through some of the perils that some of the quicker, less tenacious guys are able to do. So I don't know. I, I think that's probably why I'm so attracted to it. Since you brought this up, and it just drew me to part of the book that I did read where you were talking about running your first marathon, which was Big Sur. Yeah. And how you'd been out getting high till like two in the morning and had to get on the bus to Carmel to make your way to the start line at five and how you were in pretty bad shape, hadn't trained at all for it. And then somewhere along mile 20, you stopped and drank a few beers with some people threw up a few times and then made your way to the finish line and still ran like, what was a, like a 
three forty or so, I, I don't recall what the number was. Yeah, actually, I think I think I just barely broke three thirty even. So. Yeah, so that just pissed me off because <laughs> I, I ran <laughs> I ran the Big Sur Marathon, and uh, as a matter of fact, it's the last marathon I ran, and I ran it in like three fifty, and I was training. I probably peaked at about seventy miles a week leading up to that event. But full disclosure, I had trouble with my knee heading into the event, and it was pretty swollen at mile 17, and I, I hobbled for the better part of the, the finish. And it took me 350, and it always haunted me to wonder what I could have done had I not been injured. Yeah. But the idea that you were able to get out and get hammered all night long, throw up a couple three times on the course, stop and have a couple beers with the the people on the sidelines and still get under 330 that just that didn't sit well with me. Well, you know, clearly you 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 should have stopped there at the Highlands Inn at mile 22 and and down a couple of brews and you know, maybe it 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 would have gone better, I don't know, but um no, it was a what an ugly you know, way to start. And I describe in the book too, of course, and, and this isn't a surprise that I'm standing at the finish line watching other people be happy and hugging their loved ones and crying and having accomplished this, this thing. And I felt none of that because I was just a disaster. You know, I was, I, it was like I was soulless, you know, I had nothing, there was, it felt like nothing good going on, uh, certainly not inside. And I was young though, I was 27 years old and I, you know, my, I thought I was bulletproof. And, and so I had no clue about running or pacing or, or much of anything. And so I just went out and ran as hard as I could. And, and I was still, you know, my body still worked well enough at that point that I could get away with a certain amount of it and you know not exactly the ideal i wouldn't recommend it as a path to your first marathon but it it i got through it and it gave me something to look back on and understand you know the the gift that running is and that running marathons and and being having camaraderie and you know, just a sense of community. I mean, that's the other thing that I, I'll always run marathons and and races like that, you know, whether it's for the challenge or not, I love the, I love the community and I love the people and I love standing on the starting line, you know, and you don't know if it's the, if the guy next to you is the CEO or the woman on the other side is, uh, you know, a hairdresser or, or a CEO of a company or, you know, you just have no idea. And I, I love that. Everybody's just a runner when you're out there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's no other sport like that. No. In my in my opinion. I mean there's no there's just not one. No. You know, you don't you don't get to run on the champion. You don't get to play golf. Yeah, you know, I don't get to go out there at the Masters and, and uh you know, and, and, and drive a couple of fairways or, or hit balls at the U.S. Open, you know, but I, I get to run the Boston Marathon course or New York or some other place. Charlie, let people know where the best place is to find your book. So, you know, you can go, the easiest place is just go to my website. It's just charlieingle.com. And, you know, on there are direct links to uh, right now, uh, to Books A Million, Barnes Noble, Amazon, 
the Simon and Schuster site. There's tons of independent bookstores out there that are carrying the book. Uh, I was thrilled to be walking through an airport the other day and and actually spot my book in an airport, which I, I don't know why that excited me so much, but oh, that would have buzzed me for sure. Yeah, you know, it's like, hey, look at that, and uh, you know, it's called Running Man, and it's it's uh, again, I I encourage people. It's also on. So right now, the book is number one on Amazon's hot new releases. Wow. And the audio book is actually the top audio book uh, on Amazon at this point for hot new books. And I did actually record the audio book myself. Uh, it's a funny it's a funny story because I had to audition to play myself, which was great. Luckily, I pulled it off. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's it's been a good journey so far, and I really appreciate the, the questions and support, and I always love talking to you. Well, I'm coming out your way. Close, closer than normal. I'm going to be in Killington, Vermont. All right. We're doing a running clinic on the 21st to the 23rd of next month. Okay. I know you're in North Carolina, so you're not super close, but you're closer than you are right now. Well, give a shout for sure. You never know what I'm going to do. I would love to come. Killington's the other place that I, of course, you know, I know that's where one of the other ultra Spartan races yeah. is. Um and uh, last week. Yeah, that's what I heard. And I, I'm, you know, again, I think 2017 is my my year for obstacle course racing and 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 new lessons and humbling situations. <laughs> so, but I'll take all of those I can get. I feel I feel lucky to be able to still be out there, you know, chasing the dream, whatever whatever that dream is. Well, Charlie, I'm proud of you, man. I think the book was amazing. The fact that you you've got a bestseller, you know, how cool is that? It's you know, dude, it's a miracle. I mean, it really is, and I'm I'm grateful to everybody that's supported the book so far. And you know, I love the holidays coming up. I mean, again, the other great compliment I get is that you know, a person will read it and they'll say, "Well, I'm a runner," but you know what? I'm giving it to you know, four other people who aren't runners because. I think it is a book about, you know, redemption and it's, there's, there's always another chance and, and our, our happiness and our fulfillment is up to us and nobody has control over that, but us. And I, I hope that's what people can take away from the book. I, I think they will. Charlie, thanks so much. Uh, we, we need to get together one day, brother. We do. We do. And thank you for always uh, including me in these great conversations and your perspective is, is always illuminating and, and it uh, teaches me something new every time. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.